0: I can assure you that Jesus did not do it for what he got out of it. He got pain. The father turned his back on the son for the first and only time in the history of the world and into all eternity. It will never happen again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He didn't do it for what he got out of it. Now the father got a family and the spirit got a temple. But Jesus got a lot of pain. And hurt and separation. His actions showed that you and I were a priority. He counted us as more important than his very own life. Who was first? How about you and me? Who is first in your life? Who's first in my life? Who do you give priority to or think to be the most important in your life? Well, God, through Paul, Uh, in this passage this morning and really throughout the rest of chapter 2 is going to give us the right answer to who is first, or at least who should be first. Now we see the importance uh, of this passage by looking at the context. And so before we zero in on these four verses this morning, I'm just going to warn you, the introduction this morning is way longer than normal because I want us to see some things about this passage. In fact, I think seeing this passage in light of the whole is even more important than breaking the passage down by word, verse by verse, I mean, phrase by phrase. And I think you'll understand that when we finish here this morning. But we want to see this, this, this chapter 2, the verses, of, verses 1 through 4, chapter 2, in light of where it fits into Philippians. We want to we see it in light of its context. So we see the importance of the context first with the first word in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, Now, I know some of your translations don't say, therefore, it may say, so so then. Uh, Some of them don't even, one of them in particular, I don't even point it out, doesn't indicate that. But there is a word there that is, therefore, or so then, in in the original. Uh, So, this connects, what happens, this therefore, or so, connects the truth of chapter 2 with the passage right before it. And you don't want to miss this, or you will miss where this fits in and how it operates in Philippians and how it operates in your life. So it's connected to what comes before it. So last week, as we studied verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, remember, there weren't chapters, there weren't verses in the original, just all one big book, one big letter. Do you put numbers in your letters? We don't, do we? But it helps us find places, so it's okay. It's not wrong that we have them, but just understand that. So we, we want to make sure we keep things together, so we keep it together. So last week, we learned in studying those verses, we learned what? If you get this wrong, I mean, you flunked last week. Just one thing. We just learned just one thing. That's all we learned last week. Just one thing. And that's all Paul wanted the Philippians to learn and understand was just one thing. Look there at verse 27 again with me and notice this just one thing. The the word there, and again, there's one translation for some reason left this out. I don't know, understand why, but it's the word only. I mean, we even, the Greek word is monos or monos. We get mono, one, right? It's the very for, Key word in the beginning, of the verse. you, you can't miss this. One, and, and it's, and it's, it.'s one, and it's one to man, just one thing. Paul says, "If you don't do anything else, do just this one thing. Just this one thing. If you don't do it, this is just this one thing. And, and, and then he tells us what the one thing is. Look in verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the one thing. This, this imperative, this conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is the overarching imperative some say all the way through verse, chapter 2 verse 18 that'd be a lot wouldn't it I think it's the imperative for the whole the entire book of Philippians from here on out I think everything after this explains and expands on the one thing that Paul wanted to get across is to conduct, yourself manner, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. That was, that was his whole thing. And everything after that is really feeding it. You see how, you, how you're to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we asked that question last week, so how do we do that? Well, what I love about Paul, he goes, okay, here you go, I'll tell you how to. And last week we saw a couple things in the way that we go about conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It was standing firm and fearing not. Standing firm for the gospel and fearing not the opponents of the gospel. That's how you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul made that clear. And this week in verses 1-4 through 4 of chapter 2 we're going to learn another way that we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, so not, not only... Uh, do we understand verses 1 through 4 and need to understand it when it comes what is before it right? but we need to understand these, these words of verses 1 through 4 by considering how they fit into chapter 2 how, and what really in a sense comes after it uh, but there's a key to, the, the key to understand this entire chapter if you guys don't get anything out of Philippians but what I'm getting ready to say that'll be okay because it's, uh, it, it's, it's the most life-changing, for me at least, thing in all Philippians. And that's verses 3 and 4. This, this is the, the main thing, the main point of chapter 2. It's the main way in chapter 2 that we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the main thing. Now, I want you to look at those verses with me. We're going to look at them over and over. It says this, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out, only look, merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Wow. Wow, think about that. I can only imagine what the original recipients of, of Philippians, these, these believers in Philippi, were, who Paul loved greatly. He had already visited them twice. Now he's in prison. He writes them. He'll visit them one more time before he's imprisoned for the very last time in his life and is killed. But, but he loved these people. I can only imagine what their thought was when Paul laid down this mammoth, it's just a, one of the biggest animals I'd think of, all right, this mammoth principle of selfless humility before them. When he had just instructed them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now he tells them, be selfless and humble toward others. Not only does he summarize the, 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 really the main principle of chapter 2 in verses 3 and 4, he reemphasizes it all throughout chapter 2. He does this by giving illustration and example after example of this principle of selfless humility, beginning with Jesus. So verses 5 through 11, I'm, I'm going to go all the way through chapter 2 today. You guys are going to love that, but we're going to come back and get more detailed later. All right? But I'm going to give you all chapter 2 right now. Verses 5 through 11. He gives the example of Christ. Look there with me in verse 5. Have this attitude. What attitude? The attitude of selfish humility in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And you see this. There's selfish humility in Christ. He gave himself for the betterment of others. And you can imagine the Philippians going, well, yeah, that's Jesus. I mean, he's God. That's easy for him to do, Right. Well, first of all, it wasn't easy for him to do, but he did it, but you could say, okay, he's God. Well, we'll look at look at the, the next thing. Paul goes, okay, I got you, I got you. That is kind of tough. But we saw it earlier already in 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 chapter 1. If you look back in verse um, 25, Paul says, verse chapter 1, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Who is Paul thinking about? Himself or them? Them. And then look at chapter 2. Thanks to we're keeping in chapter two verses seventeen and eighteen. Paul says, "But even I'm being poured out as a drink offering up on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Poured out as a drink offering. We talked about this already. This is talking about Paul giving his life up for them. He think he may, he he thinking he might die right now for the betterment of the Philippians. So is he giving? If he is he carrying out this principle of selfish humility? You bet he is. It's exactly right. He is. So you see Jesus. Well, I mean he's God. Well, Paul. I mean he's like I mean the apostle Paul. Come on." I mean, who's as good as the Apostle Paul? That guy be thinking, say, "Oh, great. Well, maybe not Jesus. Maybe not. how about Timothy?" In verses nineteen through twenty-four, he brings up Timothy as an example of this principle. We'll just read verses nineteen through twenty-one. But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred of spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. Then verse twenty-one: For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Do we see this principle of selfish humility, doing things for what others get out of it in Timothy? You bet we do. No one cares about you like Timothy does. Well, I mean, okay, you got Jesus. Uh, n- not even close. Paul, he's just too... And Timothy was his right-hand man. Uh, we couldn't possibly live up to that kind of principle or standard. All those guys are just... They're, they're like Super-Christians. Well, okay, Paul says, well, great, all, we'll play along with your game. How about verses 25 through 30? And he brings up a guy named Epaphroditus, and he was their next-door neighbor. He's the guy that took this, first of all, took a gift to the, the, the Apostle Paul when he's in prison on behalf of the church of Philippi, all right? And he actually brings this letter, he's the deliverer, he brings this letter back to, from Paul to the church of Philippi. But look what Paul says about Epaphroditus in verse 30, because he, speaking of Epaphroditus, came close to death. For the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You see selfish humility there? Paphroditus risked his life for the gospel. He risked his life for Paul. He risked his life for the people of the church of Philippi. Selfish humility. So you can say, well, not Jesus, not Paul, not Timothy. But the guy next door can do it. And Paul, I think, is saying through chapter 2, is you can do it too. God has changed you in such a way that you can live out this principle I'm calling you to live out because of Jesus. And His an example Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus gives. There you go, chapter 2. We're not going to three, one, All right. That's chapter 2. That, that, that you see this principle lived out, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. It's all through chapter 2. You can't miss, it, miss this. I just, I just want to let you know, I've spent more time thinking about this passage of Scripture right here than any other passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. Now, I quote it like every other sermon. You probably ought to know that, right? I, I have. I've spent more time in, 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 in convicted by this passage right here than any other passage in all of Scripture, even this morning, convicted at my own selfishness and looking out for my own personal interests instead of the interests of others. Convicted from this passage right here. I've spent more time pondering, and first of all, spent, because I've been convicted, I've also been, spent more time repenting over this passage of Scripture right here than any other passage of Scripture in the Bible. And I, I don't make any apologies for that at all. Yeah, I've read the whole Bible multiple times and I'll reading it again. I've studied a lot of the Bible. but There's no passage of Scripture that has impacted my life more than this one right here. I've spent more time pondering and praying over how to apply this passage of Scripture than any other passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. If you're visiting with us this morning, you just happened to hit this Sunday. All right? I've spent more time trying to teach others the principles contained in these words, verses 3 and 4, than any other thing I've spent time teaching in all of the rest of the Bible, you think, man, I mean, you spent hundred messages in John, eighty-three in Genesis, but I've spent more time—maybe not from the pulpit, but one-on-one conversations, small group stuff—trying to help people apply this principle and understand this principle than any other principle in all of Scripture. It's that important. It is that important. You know, if I preach this sermon as my last one, praise God. It'll be the best one I've ever preached. Because all I do, I've to get out of the way from this passage. I would have to do that every week. But I'm just telling you this passage is that impactful, it's that important. So hopefully, at least you realize how important this passage is to me. And how important you think it, I, I think it should be in your life as well. Well, let's, let's move on. So we, we, we at least briefly see how these verses relate to the end of chapter 1. We see how they relate to chapter 2 as a whole. I hope you see that connection all the way through. Now let's look at these four verses. So when looking look at these four verses this morning, I, I, just want, I want to take three words to summarize these four verses. All right, three words to summarize these four verses. I think you might have an outline on the back of your little uh, bulletin handout. You can use that if you want. If not, you can just write these three words down in your Bible, another piece of paper on your hand, or just put it on your heart, which would be even more important. Alright, so these three verses so we can understand what Paul's trying to teach so we can answer correctly this question, who is first? And not only answer it correctly but apply it. Actually put the person or the people that's supposed to be first, first. Alright, let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compa- compassion. So the word we're going to use to summarize this verse here is the word identity identity and I'll explain that here in just a second. But once again just look at that first word there. It's therefore it points back again to, to what we've learned before and specifically the the, the, the admonition in the one thing conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's pointing back to that. Paul says based on the fact that you've been called to do this, to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, you must therefore you must therefore understand something else. Which will lead you to carrying out this charge of conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that's what the therefore is there for. Now, now notice the, the word if. It's actually four times in this one verse. Uh, i just throw this out here. You can go read about it later if you want to. But it, it's, a first condition, it's a first class conditional clause. Real important, isn't it? It is important. Because if you don't understand what that means, then you're in trouble. You'll, you'll misunderstand the passage. So what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. And all four of these ifs are the same thing. They're all first class conditional causes. These four ifs is if this condition is true, and it is, then. Or maybe even a better way to say it in English is since. So you could say this. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation and love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, it is. It's a reality. It's not if condition. If this happens, this will happen. This is if and it is. Since. And each of these four ifs introduces a reality that, that, that in the lives of these believers that Paul is writing to that will help them carry out God's call in their life. The four things that Paul writes up here are supernatural. They're divine realities that have already happened in their lives. Not will happen. They have already happened. He's, this is their identity. This is who they are in Christ. He's pointed. These things have already happened in your life. Therefore, I told you to conduct yourselves. Therefore, based upon these things, then there's another therefore in a sense. These realities are true. So let's just take a, a, a brief moment to, to look at these four supernatural realities that make up their identity. First of all, that first phrase, encouragement in Christ. Uh, Another translation says consolation. It comes from a a word that is related to comforter, counselor, helper. It comes from the same root as we get the word paraclete, which is a Greek word for the Holy Spirit. And we see that in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Paul is pointing to the fact that they are encouraged in Christ by the fact that he, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, are helped the word means to help to help those in need um, and, and they can imp- actually because of this encouragement they have in Christ this, this help, this, this comforter that they have in Christ they can carry out his charge to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel alright so the second supernatural reality that makes up their identity is seen in the next phrase consolation of love your translation they say comfort of love and it's speaking of christ's love paul is telling these believers that the love of christ has consoled you or comforted you in your lost condition what's their lost condition Well, all fall short of sin and false to the glory of god and the wages of sin is death eternal separation from god forever that's their lost condition do they need some consoling and comforting you bet And the love of Christ has consoled them. He's comforted them in their lost condition. and so much so that he didn't leave them in their lost condition. Man, I love that. Look what it says in Romans 5.5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The love of God has been, I love this picture, poured out into our hearts. Is there any consolation? Or comfort in that? You bet there is. How about verse 8 of the very same chapter? But God demonstrates his own love. His own love in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. He demonstrates his love toward us. That Christ would die for us. Does the love of Christ console you? You bet it does. It comforts us. It gives us hope. And that's what the the reality that he's pointing to is that you've been comforted, you've been consoled by the love of Christ. He says your identity as a follower of Christ is that you are loved by Christ and his love has taken away the, 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 the guilty verdict. He's taken away the guilty verdict and declared you not guilty because of his love. Well, Let's look at the third supernatural reality that makes up our identity as followers of Christ. You see that there? If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, uh, the ESV says participation in the Spirit. Uh, This is related to the first reality, in a sense, because he's speaking of, he talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit already, and speaks of an intimate partnership that comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. This is where we get the word koinonia, Probably heard of that word. It's one of the many Greek words people have heard. Maybe you haven't heard that, so it's the first time you've heard it. And it's often just translated fellowship, and it's it's a good English translation. But often we here's what we think about fellowship. Right, let's get let's get together and eat. we have just got some fellowship going, and that's in every church. I used to kid people. You know, I grew up in the Baptist church, and it was Baptists. They like to eat. Well, I haven't met any church that doesn't like to eat. All right. So whatever background you come, you can relate to me, right? We're having fellowship because we're eating. Man, it goes way deeper than that. We just read a passage in, in God's... We're reading through the book of Acts, and there was no... It was just the order of verses we came. And did you see what they did when they got together? It wasn't just about eating. In fact, that was kind of secondary. They just got around. And they began to, to serve each other and pray with each other and, 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 and give of their time and their talent and their treasures and, and really get in and partner with each other. And this word really means partnership. It's, it's not, not just participating in, but partnering in something. Not just getting together. That's not biblical fellowship because we ate together what do we do when we ate together do we give thanks to the Lord for giving us that food and talk about his greatness and his grace in our life for giving us that food and then what the energy was going to do to give us to be able to go out and, and do what Paul calls us to do to conduct ourselves in, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ now we're talking about fellowship and when, when, when Eric shares a need with me do I say hey brother I'll pray for you well I better pray but also it be, better be the answer to the prayer and I better get him a new instrument if he needs one right I mean, you say, oh, it's kind of carried away. No, that's what it means. It's participating in. And he's talking about we have this fellowship, this participation with the Spirit of God. With God, the Holy Spirit. It's not just with one another. It's, he's talking here about our relationship, our fellowship, and the partnership we have with God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells all believers. We see this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Wow. He indwells us. He is in us. And, and the Bible talks about we are in him, in Christ. Wow. And the Bible also speaks about this when it comes to the Holy Spirit. That we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. That the Holy Spirit is a down payment or a pledge of our inheritance. Ephesians 1.14. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Romans 8.26. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And we've got the list of the Holy Spirit, get the gifts of the Holy Spirit all over the place. In Corinthians... In Galatians, and Romans, the Holy Spirit produces what? The fruit of the Spirit. I mean, there's more, of it. there's more than a little fellowship going on there, isn't there? There's a partnership going on because the Spirit indwells us. Wow! That's who they are. This is part of their identity. This God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy... I mean, he's not, it's not an it. It's a he. Right? One what, three who's. One God, three persons. This is God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells them. And this is meant to bring them encouragement as part of their identity. The fourth supernatural reality that makes up their identity as followers of Christ is seen in the last phrase, if any affection, or since there is affection and compassion, or your translation may say tenderness or mercy or sympathy. uh, They experience this affection, this compassion in Christ when they first came to know Christ. We go back to Acts 16, you see where the church was planted in Philippi and the changes that happened there and they experienced when they became a christian the affection and compassion of christ you see affection and compassion denote that there's a need that must be met in the recipient you see that affection and compassion when you think about you could kind of summarize mercy when mercy needs to be given it means there's a need in the recipient to receive that The great need and the greatest need for every man, woman, boy, or girl is our need to be made right with God. That's our greatest need. That's where we need more mercy than anything. And God in Christ took care of that by giving himself for us. He expressed this affection and compassion in sending Jesus. And and he then continues to express his affection and compassion for us. Don't we have needs every day? I do. Maybe I'm the only one person. I've got needs in every area of my life. Physical, spiritually, and mentally. And God says that he continues to express affection and compassion toward us, and he will. And Paul reminds us of that in the very last chapter of this book we're studying right now, in Philippians 4.19. Well, somehow that didn't get on there, but I'll, if, Philippi, if you want to flip over to Philippians 4.19, you can see this. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. He'll supply all your needs What out of his affection and compassion for you because the mercy that we need right, or the fact that he has to express affection and compassion denotes that there's a need. And he meets that every day. There's a promise of his affection and compa- compassion. So Paul says that the identity of these believers is wrapped up in these supernatural realities that God has brought in their lives because of Christ. This has already happened. He says, you've been encouraged in Christ. You've been consoled by his love. You have an intimate partnership with the Holy Spirit and are loved affectionately and compassionately by the eternal God. This is your identity. That's who you are. That's what he calls them to. And based on your identity, now look at this. Based upon that identity of who you are in Christ, something that's already happened the supernatural realities that have already happened in your life, he says, Based on that, he exhorts them, then in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And the word we'll use to summarize what Paul is teaching here is unity. So you have identity, and now you have I- unity. Based upon the identity, he calls them to u- unity. Based upon who you are and what God has done in you, now he calls them to unity. Look, look there, he says that the phrase, he says, make my joy complete, or fulfill my joy. And, and, and the word is this, is a word picture of fill my cup to the full. Now we got a new Starbucks in town, don't we? We do. I've seen some of you all at, driving through there as I drive by on the access road, Jared. All right. <laughs> is, do you have a bed there? I was just wondering, yeah, okay. I'm kidding. I've seen some other people there, too, driving through, all right? And when you go over there to Starbucks and you order your something, see, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't even know all that stuff, your latte or your frappuccino or cappuccino or happuccino, I don't even know what it is, all right? Whatever you order, I mean, you don't want them to give you half a cup, do you? I mean, your joy will not be complete, I promise you, if they give you half a cup. And if I roll up and get the one thing, I'll get there. Maybe two things, but one thing for sure, you guys know what that is, hot. Chocolate, You got, you know, my like, weakness is chocolate. If I, I haven't done that yet. but if I, get, I, I don't want a half a cup of chocolate. I want it almost spilling out. I want it to the full. And, and Paul, this is the word picture here that Paul is saying, fill my cup to the full with joy. That's what he's calling him to do. He says, I want you to fill, based upon who you are, I want you to fill up my cup with joy. Now, he, he, he already has joy, but he's just telling them, I want it full. I want my life to be full with joy. And, and how are they to do this? But He says right here, by being like, in the same mind, maintaining the same love, uniting one spirit, and on one uh, on one purpose. This flows out of your identity, he says. This is what should come because of who you are in Christ. And it seems that there must have been some self-promotion or self-interest in the church of Philippi or Paul would not have spent so much time on this. There's a problem. And we'll see even later there's some problems about self-promotion and self-interest in the church of Philippi. So Paul lovingly addresses this with those people. Now, of course, this is the only church that self-promotion or self-interest ever happened in, right? That would never happen here at Grace, right? You know, the reality is it does, doesn't it? We need to hear this. Every believer, every follower of Christ needs to hear this. And we've got the same problems that they did. But Paul, because of God, has the answer. Paul says, if you want to fill up my cup with joy, then, then this must be a jet dress. This must be changed. I've got the half a cup. Fill it up. Paul tells him how to do this with four phrases. We're, we're just going to work through these pretty, pretty briefly and quickly. He says, of the same mind. This is Pete stalk, talking about an attitude. What's your attitude? Same mind. You have the same attitude that, that, that leads to action. It's an attitude that leads to action. Often attitudes do lead to action, don't they? They should have the same mind as this picture of having the same attitude. And then he says, have the same love. Well, how in the world could they have the same love? Well, how about verse 1? They've been comforted by the love of Christ. They have the same love. They look back to the love of Christ and, and that, that, that love that he has demonstrated and poured out into their hearts. They, they look to that and they find their, their same love in that love, in that kind of love. And then he goes on and he says, United in spirit. I love what Peter O'Brien says about this. He says that this united spirit is the idea of inner harmony in place of self-interest. United in spirit. It's not talking... Now, the Holy Spirit has something to do with this. He's talking about their own personal spirits. I've got a spirit. You're you're a spiritual being. That we're united in our spirit, all right? And we live in harmony in place of self-interest. It's not about Nate's spirit and Ben's spirit, and my spirit, here's what it's about. It's about our spirit. You see that? That's what he's saying. Be united in spirit. Not about self-interested. It's about harmony, coming together. Now, I I can't sing in harmony. I can sing bass. Can't I, Greg? Our new sound system has proven that. Because it records every channel... Individually, even my mic when it's muted and you can't hear me singing, it records back there. So I come in here Wednesday night to pick up my kids for youth, and Greg says, "Come here, Brian. You got to hear this." He goes, "I heard something in the background when we were singing. I was listening, and I turned down all the other channels." And here's Brian singing. All right. <laughs> I don't sing in harmony, but you know what? And you may not be able to sing in harmony, but I can live in harmony. And Paul calls us all to live in harmony, doesn't he? All of us. Not. It's not me. It's not about my one channel. It's about all the channels pull full throttle. Going toward the same thing. You liked that, didn't you, Greg? Yeah. He calls them to, to, to this. And then he says to be intent, the last phrase, intent on one purpose. Directed toward a single goal. Now, th- this is, my wife caught me, not caught me, but she knew what I was doing. I was checking out and there was like this line of names and then there was like names of schools here and then like heat numbers and then there was like times next to it. You know what I'm talking about? I was checking on track and field. Whew, man, I love track and field. If I was good enough, I would have played, done that instead of football. I did that in high school. I love it. So I'm checking on, yesterday was Kentucky High School Championships for track and field and the girls in Illinois. So I was checking and saw with the times they were running and checking it out. And, and I love to you know, I look all about, we're really like the sprinters to check out what these young sprinters are doing. Now a sprinter, if the sprinter is going to be successful in sprinting. They've got a lane to run in. And if they get distracted by anything outside of that lane, like their mom in the stands, or the girlfriend, or whatever, or something, this this javelin's being thrown over here, they're not going to do too well. They have to be focused. One focus. And what I like even better is the relays. Because you've got four people that have to be focused on the same goal. And what's amazing, this is, say a sprinter can run 11 flat in 100 meters. And you've got four of them that can run 11 flat by themselves from a dead start in 100 meters. But they can run 42-5 together. Hold on. 11 times 4 is 44. But you know what? Together, they can run faster and separate. Why? Because they're intent on one purpose. They're united on one purpose. And the purpose that he's calling them to here is the purpose is the gospel. Listen, not just the gospel, but how it affects their interpersonal relationships. That's what he's talking about here. Be united in this one purpose, intent on one purpose, being, being together about the purpose of the gospel, how it affects and relates to your interpersonal relationships. Paul calls them to unity. He called them to unity in verse 27, and we saw that, but this unity was there, was about standing together against opponents of the gospel, and this unity is a little bit different. He calls them here the, the, to this unity is about their interpersonal relationships. Two different kinds of unity. And both of them are expressions of what? Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand together, be united against the opponents that hate the gospel. But also be unified in being unified in your interpersonal relationships. Both of them live out this call on your life. And if there is true unity among the believers in Philippi, then it will be expressed by what Paul teaches in verses 3 and 4. And what does he teach there? To do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but the humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And we'll summarize that truth with this one word. Humility. Humility. The truth contained in these verses is not one of those mysteries or confusing things that Paul says. Peter even says about, you know, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. This isn't one of them. Uh, you, you don't really need to dig down very far into the Greek grammar and the definitions and all this kind of stuff to understand this. This is one of those things that Mark Twain talked about. He says, you know, it's not the part about the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the part of the Bible that I do understand that bothers me. And I understand this completely well. This is not difficult to understand. It's as clear, and this is why I like it. It says it's so clear, and I need it clear. And Paul goes to great lengths to make sure it's clear. Verse 3 is restated in verse 4. And then Paul uses what? The rest rest of the chapter to illustrate and and give examples of this one principle. Humility. Selfless humility. He makes it as clear as possible. Look at the word there, selfishness. Uh, your, Your translation says selfish ambition. It's a strong drive for personal success without moral inhibition. It's going to get what you want, no matter what. It's even seen back in verse 17 of chapter 1. Look there with me. And and Paul talking about these people who are spreading the gospel, which is great. Some of them don't do the great motives. He says, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Same word selfish ambition they're they're doing it they're going to get what they want out of it they may be proclaiming the truth of the gospel they're going to get what they want out of it he used the same word here that that we do nothing from selfishness we don't it's not about our personal success no matter what and and the next word empty conceit or vain conceit or just conceit it's it's to mean to be conceited make yourself look good is what it means to make yourself look good if somebody is conceited they're concerned about how they look don't they they're really concerned. He gets this vain conceit or empty conceit. It's about, okay, let me look in the mirror again. All right. You know, so, I mean, I just gave up on my hair. Look. I mean, I just, it doesn't work anymore. I just, you just cut it off, right? It works better that way. But if you're really concerned about, if somebody's concerned about how they look, they're, they're, there's an empty conceit there. And then the, part, the second part of verse 3 gives the contrast. It says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. And he says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. But there's a contrast here. Social standing does not equate importance. Instead, spiritual standing equates importance. And, and, and understand this, and you've probably heard this before. It's all level at the foot of the cross. There's no hierarchy there. We all stand on the same ground. We're all people who were enemies of God, running as far as And as hard away from God as we possibly could. Shaking our fist as we went. All of us. And God in his mercy and grace. Did what he did in Lydia. In Philippi in Acts 16. He opened her heart. He opened our heart to receive the gospel. That we would no longer be enemies. But we would be children of God. That we would repent and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For what he did on our behalf. It's all level. We're people who have been redeemed by the wonderful Savior. Savior. All who are in Christ are at the same level. I, I think about James chapter 2, 1 through 4. And we don't have time really to look at it in depth this morning. But just let me say this. It, it talks about a brother or sister coming in with a gold ring. And they're looking good. I mean, it's like Mr. T walking in. All right? Some of you all remember who Mr. T is. Some of you don't. He had all the chains. I mean, he looked good, right? He came in and, and, and oh, you come. Hey, Mr. T, looking good. Tim Tebow. You all know I got to meet Tim Tebow a couple weeks ago. spent some time with him. You just come. You sit right here. All right? Nathan, you go to the back, brother. All right. I'm kidding. I love Nathan. It's not like that. James says, no, no, no. And Paul's saying the same thing. No, 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 no. Not at all. And verse 4 is a restatement of verse 3. These two verses have a structure of A B A B. Have you done any kind of study in poetry and literature? It's it's called a chiasm. And here's what it looks like. Alright? Do nothing selfish into conceit. That's A. And in the A of the next verse, do do not merely look out for your own personal interests. It means the same thing. Okay? And then you go to B. All right? With humility of my regard, one of the more more important than yourself, also look for the interests of others. Others, others, right? It's it's, it's, it's a chiasm. It's to emphasize and reemphasize this this principle of selfless humility. So here's our question. Who is first? Who is first? the other person that's a simple answer the other person is first some object and say you must look out for your own personal interest because if you don't then you're going to be in trouble you get hurt you know i've never met anybody that didn't look out for their own personal interest and i guarantee you paul had neither we don't have a hard time looking out for our own personal interest we're never commanded to do that we're also never commanded to love ourselves we don't have anybody to tell us to command it we do that pretty well don't we we have to tell people to tell us to love somebody else like Christ loved the church. We have to have somebody come along and say, look out for the personal interests of someone else. We don't have a problem with our own. And, 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 and I've asked that question before. You know what? When we ask that kind of question, it's exactly why Paul gives these verses. It shows our heart. We're more concerned about ourselves. Well, how, what, what if I did this and that other? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the problem's us. and That's what Paul's getting at. He wasn't saying don't take care of yourself at all. Obviously, we, our needs will be met, and, and they do that. Na- we do that naturally. Paul teaches here that our identity will lead to unity that will be evidenced by humility. Putting others before ourselves in every relationship. So here we go. Who is first? Who's first in your marriage? Who's first in your marriage? We've got some elbows going. The elbows ought to be going both ways. Who's first in your marriage? The other person. Okay, I'm, I'm going get, to we'll get, our teenagers are old enough to handle this in here. Who's first in the bedroom? Those who are married. Who's first? Is it about your needs or theirs? Any Christian book that would call itself Christian to say that you've got your needs and they to met, you've got to burn it. That's exactly opposite of what it teaches here. So if you've got one of those, go ahead and burn it. Or bring to my house, and I will. Not really, really we be careful with any of these people burning books and crashing records and stuff like they did back when I was a kid. But I'm just saying, I mean, it's just wrong. Who's first? The other person is what i say, Who's first in your family? This is about your knees? Is about your knees? I've got two little ones that get up early in the morning. I'm reviewing my sermon on Sunday morning. I, Dad, can I, I need some juice. Can you cover me up? And then I go sit back down. I'm just getting back in review, about halfway through reviewing again. Daddy, Daddy. Who's first? Sometimes you know what? I hate tell you I'm first I'm first I need the gospel every day every second of the day and you do too who's first in your relationships at work who's first oh man you don't understand the workplace yeah I do there's a problem in our workplaces because of a- actuality it's about you it's about no I'm not saying you it's, it's about you right and God says no Think about if Jesus had that attitude, he never would have come. How about your friends? Who's it about? Who's first? How about at school? Who's first? How about on your athletic teams? Who's first? Who is first? And Paul would say the other is first. The other is first. And, and guess what? Next week, we're not going to get off this subject. All we're going to do is look to Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking form of the servant becoming the likeness of man and, and giving himself on the cross because he thought of us first. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. And Lord, I pray that we would all examine our hearts and cry out to you, Lord. We need the gospel, Lord. And because of our identity in you, because you've given us the spirit, because you've loved us, because you've changed us from enemies to children, uh, to those who have been given a new heart, Lord, we have the ability to do what you're called us to do. So Lord, I I pray that we would seek the betterment of others so that you might be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.